0: Hello, listeners, and welcome to another exciting episode of the Helping Hands of Our Community, addressing the Social Determinants of Health podcast. Thank you for taking time to support us by tuning in, listening, and learning. This is Roger Saclupe, and along with my co-host, Dr. Drew Reynolds, we are here to highlight the incredible work of individuals, agencies, and organizations who are helping create healthy and thriving communities. Drew, how have you been, brother?
1: I'm doing great, man. Thanks so much for having me on today. Come on now.
0: You know you're part of this. Uh, we've missed you for the past couple of episodes. Uh, he was spending time with family, which is very important. We know as helping professionals, uh, we do a lot in our communities. Uh, as individuals who are embedded in academia, we do a lot of research. And as professors, we do a lot of teaching. But we also need to recognize that uh, it's good to take a break to step back and to enjoy life with family and friends. So Drew, I'm so glad that you were able to do that, but I'm I'm equally as excited to have you here with us today.
1: Awesome. I can't wait to get started.
0: So Drew, today we have an excellent guest who works with an amazing agency, an agency that is near and dear to my heart because I spent seven years there learning, growing, and developing as a social worker, mental health therapist, supervisor, and community leader. Today, we welcome Will Jones, CEO and President of Thompson Child and Family Focus. Will, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. So I'd like to tell our listeners a little bit about Will and his work as an advocate and leader. Will Jones has devoted his career to child welfare, juvenile justice, and behavioral health services in residential and community-based programming. In his first two years at Thompson Child and Family Focus, this spring marks his second year anniversary, by the way. Will cultivated growth across all areas of service within the organization, resulting in the additional impact of 900 children daily. Growth and transformation under his leadership has also led to increased utilization of PRTF by 80% and an 80% increase in foster care services, including the expansion in Asheville. He has also helped expand Thompson's family education services to Union and Cabarrus County, Will, real quick, for folks who don't know what PRTF means, can you elaborate on that a little yes, bit? Yes, uh, thank you for that.
2: Psychiatric Residential Treatment Facility. It's okay. uh, so a psychiatric residential treatment program for children um, in, th- in that specific model, 5 to 12 years of age. Okay. Thank you for that.
0: Will joined Thompson with nearly 23 years of human services experience. 15 of those years were in senior and executive level leadership in public and private agencies. Will started his career in 1994 with the Orange County Youth and Family Services Division in Florida, where he spent eight years and led the organization to become the second public child welfare agency in Florida to be accredited by the Council on Accreditation, or COA. That's really big. It is. Can you tell us a little bit about that process? It was such a long time ago, I forgot.
2: (laughs) (laughs) No, just kidding. Um, No, absolutely. It was just an effort to um, ensure that our organization at the time, uh, just like Thompson does today, um, we're accredited by Joint Commission. Um, We're following best practice guidelines and standards, and we're measured to those best practices. Will has
0: done a lot in our community, not only here right now in his two years in Charlotte at Thompson, but really nationwide. So here at the Children's Home Society of Florida in Orlando, Will was the director of program operations from 2005 to 2008. He had overall responsibility for more than 100 child welfare staff, a budget of $15 million, and day-to-day operations of programming, including adoption, foster care, two emergency shelters, and more. As senior vice president of One Hope United in Orlando, Florida, he was responsible for overseeing child protective services in seven Florida counties. From 2012 to 2015, he was Chief Operating Officer at Eckerd Youth Alternatives, one of the nation's largest nonprofit child and family service organizations. As a member of the executive leadership team, he helped generate substantial national growth in direct service work and consulting. Eckerd had an annual budget of $185 million, and Will oversaw more than 40 programs in 11 states, including North Carolina. He earned his undergraduate and master's degree in criminal justice from the University of Central Florida. Will and his wife, Yearly, and their five children live in Waxhaw, North Carolina. Will, again, welcome to the show. We are excited that you're here, but more importantly, we definitely want to know more about Thompson. It sounds like you've done a whole lot of work in your career, and Thompson Child and Family Focus is, is very lucky to have you. So, uh, welcome again. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks again, and welcome. So, we are very excited to learn more about what you do at Thompson, but more importantly, we want to know more about Thompson. For those of our listeners who are not already familiar with Thompson's Child and Family Focus, can you tell us a little bit more about your organization, what you do there, and how your organization supports
2: our communities in need? Absolutely. Um, thank you again for having me. Really appreciate that. Thompson is 133 years old in our community. Uh, we believe that we're the longest standing not-for-profit youth service agency in the Charlotte-Mecklenburg area. Um, and it started as a, um, a, an orphanage. But all that being said, uh, um, communities change. Um, needs change, um, and the required impact um, to meet those needs change. Where we want to honor the past, um, but we really want to look into the the present and future of what's going on in our community. Um, I kind of use the the moniker internally, 133 years, then what? (laughs) Um, So we're we're now in the then what phase. And what Thompson does is three core service areas. First and foremost, early childhood learning, where we provide high-risk early childhood development services in a center on the West Boulevard corridor, right off of Clanton Road. That serves 160 high-risk children in that community every single day. Um, In that service area, we also go out into other centers in Mecklenburg, Union, and Cabarrus counties to work with children that are struggling with behavioral um, health issues. Also assist teachers into implementing appropriate interventions into those classrooms to deal with those children. Then we go a little bit further upstream um, to our family services and stability section of our work, where we do therapeutic and traditional foster care. Um, We are the largest provider of evidence-based parent education services in four counties, including York County, South Carolina. Um, And we also brought an innovative new program to Charlotte a little over a year ago called Friends of the Children, which is a model that's been in place for over 30 years in major urban areas across the United States. That was our first direct response to the Leading on Opportunities Task Force report. I hope I get a chance to talk a little bit about that. Oh, please do. Then we go further up to our mental health services, which are both community-based and residential-focused. So we provide a plethora of different mental health services. Um, In our community now, we actually have six different mental health services that we provide in our community. In addition to that, uh, you mentioned the psychiatric residential treatment facility for children 5 to 12. We just opened up. This week, we'll accept our first adolescent female to an adolescent girl's psychiatric residential treatment facility, focusing on young ladies that have actually been victims of sexual trafficking. Um, And then we also have two emergency shelters now that um, service children from Mecklenburg County that are in the child welfare system that are difficult to place.
1: Awesome. Well, thank you so much. So take us back for a little bit into your career. Can you talk a little bit about some of the experiences um, uh, professionally and otherwise that you had that led you to take on the work that you're doing today?
2: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, well, it goes back to me, um, to 1994. I kind of tell people I backed into the work, unfortunately. I always wanted to be in service work, but I think my life plan in 1994 was to go into federal law enforcement. Um, in the interim, I got accepted to uh, an advanced degree program. Um, I also got married um, and was expecting her first child. Um, so life changed drastically for me. I was blessed to have an opportunity to become a, what's called a youth program worker. was a direct care staff position at a runaway homeless youth shelter for children in Orlando, Florida. And since that point in time, um, I've been a lifelong learner, um, lifelong advocate for children, and I've never regretted that decision.
0: Was there one thing that happened in your career as you sort of, you said, you kind of f- fell into this? I think a lot of us in the helping profession will probably attest it as, well, we
2: sort of fell into this.
0: but was there one thing that impacted you, and, and you were like, "Wow, this is this is why I need to do what I need to do"?
2: Yeah, absolutely. That you know, that first year in the work was unbelievable. I mean, it's the hardest part of the work is the direct is the residential direct care work, honestly, um, at least in my career. But that also is so rewarding because you really have an opportunity to engage and learn and impact children at a different level than you do in my current role. I think it's now I'm in more of a macro level impact role, but there I was able to really connect with youth one-on-one. And I actually told a story two years ago when I got here about a young man named Donnell. Um, I'll never forget him. Um, Him and I hit it off. Um, I worked second shift nights and weekends, and we spent a lot of time together, shooting hoops together, playing video games, shooting pool, but even more so just talking about life in general. Um, And he had described his experience about his first removal from his mom and dad to me. I went on to tell me, and, and I'll never forget this, this, this phrase he mentioned. He said, he used to call me Mr. Will, being polite back in those days. And he just said, Mr. Will, you know, I didn't get to pick what zip code I was born into. And that impacted me like no other, followed by other interactions with a sibling group of three that literally were born and raised a mile from Disney property in Orlando, Florida, had an opportunity to transport them to an adoption matching event on Disney property and they were so excited and i was trying to figure out why they were overly excited and they said we've never been to a theme park but yet they lived less than a mile from Disney property their entire lives so little things like that over time culminate into what i call my why that's amazing you know i i really feel
0: like you're hitting the hammer on the nail in regards to why Drew and I decided that this podcast was something that was very crucial for our community to know about not only what you've done in the past, but other organizations and agencies in this community and how you're addressing social determinants of health. So You mentioned that the young man said, you know, I I didn't choose, I didn't get a chance to choose what zip code I was born into. And that's exactly the reason that Drew and I felt like a podcast like this is important because there are so many other stories like that, that we don't really know about. There are a lot of individuals who don't get to choose where they're born. And uh, thank you for sharing
1: that with us. Awesome. Thanks. So, Will, one thing I'd love to ask you about, too, is to talk a little bit about um, how uh, Thompson and your work has approached addressing the social factors uh, that impact people's health and well-being. So you can talk a little bit about that kind of broadly or maybe provide some specific yeah, examples. Yeah,
2: tough question. That'd be great. Um, but, um, you know, we live right in that space, I believe. Social determinants in um, so many cross-cutting factors in what we're doing. But I think... A great example is actually Friends of the Children. Quite frankly, is that it's a program that was identified, um, at least by me, anyway. As you can imagine, coming into the Charlotte community to actually work full time with a, an, or really an organ, a company, uh, excuse me, a community I lived in for five years prior to my work, but traveled nationally. Um, I had no idea that we were fifty out of fifty in upward social mobility as somebody who lived here for five years prior to my role at Thompson. Um, so that was kind of a shock. But one of the first things that I heard about was the report that was generated and. Started flipping through that a little bit and noticed that I think it was a young man during that report said, I really need somebody to help me navigate through life. Not much different than what I was probably saying as a child that really had natural supports and parents that loved them and family and, and coaches and teachers around them. But I knew of a program that really answered that call and it was called Friends of the Children. And put a phone call into them and said, hey, um, Will Jones um, with Thompson, I'd love to talk to you about possibly um, implementing your model here in the Charlotte area. And the first thing there is, are you calling us about the Social Innovation Fund grant? Uh, No, but please tell me more. (laughs) Ended up um, having to submit an application for a federal Social Innovation Fund grant um, and match one dollar to one dollar of that grant to bring that model here to Charlotte. But Friends of the Children, um, to make a long story short, is what they called a professional paid mentoring program. We call we're calling it a life navigation program, where we actually go out and recruit and retain. Bachelor's level, social workers, human services um, professionals that have lived experience, that have actually probably have high ACE scores, adverse child experience scores throughout their history, may live in some of the high-risk communities that that we're actually doing work in or definitely grew up in those communities. And we go into a high-risk elementary school and we assess through observation, a three-month observation and a um, validated risk and needs assessment tool over a three-month period of time, the entire kindergarten classroom. If you're familiar with the Renaissance West Community Initiative, the Renaissance West STEAM Academy was our first partner school. We actually assessed 72 kindergartners. Unfortunately, we only had enough funding to serve two cohorts of eight, 16 um, youth in that classroom. All 72 children in the kindergarten classroom last year at Renaissance West STEAM Academy met the profile and the risk score to um, be enrolled in the program. And And to make a long story short, what this program does is it ranks and files every child in that kindergarten classroom and goes right to the top of that list of the children that may have, data will tell us, that may have. The highest level of risk for negative life outcomes with an appropriate intentional and a long-term um, intervention like Friends of the Children. The program actually works um, couples a friend with up to eight children. They spend four hours a week with each child individually, two in the school, in the classroom, assisting the teacher, the administrators, and possibly guidance counselors in the school, and then two in the community. Here's the kicker. We commit to that children, that, those children for 12 and a half years, no matter what. So it's not a one-year and out. It's not a three-year and out program. The children stay involved in the program, and as you can imagine, as they go from kindergarten to twelfth grade, um, their needs shift, and we focus on nine core assets throughout their their adolescence. Let me take it back one step further. Eighty-nine percent of the of the parents of of the children in this model of for over thirty years either are or have been at least one are or have been incarcerated. Ninety percent of them have not graduated from high school and gone on to post-secondary education. And I think right over 90 some odd percent actually had the children when they were children themselves. Now we flip the script, we change the narrative through this intervention. And data tells us that 93% of the children that stay in this program for 12 years do not touch the juvenile justice system in their community. 88% graduate from high school and go into post-secondary education. And I think right around 89%, as you can imagine, the data shifts Around 89% actually do, are, do not get involved in teen pregnancy. So, just an unbelievable program. There's also an ROI study for every $1 invested into this intervention is a $7 savings to human services taxpayer dollars in a community. So, that's just a testament to how one
0: person can make a significant impact in the life of a child who just needs somebody to listen. To them or perhaps say to them hey you're doing a good job or do you need help with this or fill in the blank you know i I do feel like there is something about being either a mentor or somebody who can provide guidance or support it does have a significant impact I myself i'm a coach i coach uh, youth soccer programs in the community and not only is it something fun to do but it's also something that i feel like children look forward to every week when we practice or have games it's that somebody is encouraging them, but somebody is also helping them learn how to fit the models of sportsmanship into everyday life. Right. And I feel like what you guys are doing there with the Friends of the Children program, it's, it's an amazing, it's an amazing thing. So.
2: Yeah, and one of the other things we wanted to do, um, I, I've had an opportunity to see things nationally that have worked. Right. I think sometimes in a community like Charlotte, it's a parochial. And we think we know all the answers to all the questions. Um, But I think it was a funder a couple weeks ago, I was sitting in a presentation that said, we've been 50 out of 50 longer than you think, and what we're currently doing doesn't work. So that being said, one of the things we wanted to do is go out and seek proven solutions that may not exist in North Carolina and bring them to bear in Charlotte to impact the community in a different way. And we've done that. Well, you also, um, you were talking about data and numbers, and
0: I know that uh, that's something up Drew's alley. Drew loves data, and (laughs) Drew loves numbers, and uh, what do you think about that, brother?
1: Man, I was just going to jump in and start talking about that, so thanks for that segue. Um, Will, I think you gave some really great examples of the way in which um, the tools that we now have to use data and evidence to support programs, is helping us make much more informed decisions about the types of things that can help us in these challenges around opportunity and others in our community. And so um, you had talked about how every dollar invested leads to a $7 increase in social outcomes over time. And there's been a number of great studies that have looked at investment, um, particularly in the early years of a child's life, whether it's in early childhood education or in programs like the ones that you mentioned where you have this, you know, huge benefit over the life course. And so, you know, as someone who has, you know, worked to get the funding and to try and implement these programs in places where they're needed most, what are some of the, I mean, to me, it seems like a no-brainer, right? You would want to make that investment knowing that you have that return over time. Um, But what are uh, some of the barriers to um, seeking the resources and funding and just sort of community energy around investing in these types of programs? And what sorts of solutions have you found to make
2: those programs sustainable? Yeah. Uh, wow, what a great question. You know, I think first and foremost, I think, and we talk about it when new employees come into Thompson, it's um, what's the definition of insanity? To continue to do same things over and over again, but expect different outcomes. And from my seat on the bus here in the human services sector, not just in, in Charlotte, but in, in the country, um, that's, our, that's been our approach, quite frankly. Uh, we, we fear innovation. We fear doing things in a different way. And we put up a lot of barriers and roadblocks in order to do that. One of the things as a leader at Thompson, I really wanted to make sure that we were thinking differently to approach community needs more different than Thompson ever has in the past. Uh, But that being said, I think funders need to begin to think differently, too. I think generally what what I've seen, and not just locally, but I think, again, my 24, 25 year history in the work, um, investors, funders, um, government in particular, they're wanting quick outcomes, um, short term return on investment. And I think with some of the population, it's just impossible to, to get that and to ensure their sustainability into that outcome. Um, that's why like a model such as Friends of the Children can be a, a great example of the benefit of a long-term intervention that really lasts over the course of a 12 year life cycle of a child. Um, so I think a little bit of different approach and the willingness to stay to stay involved from a funding perspective into something that's going to take a lot longer to correct than you think. So that's just a, that's a viewpoint for sure that we see. Most contracted outcomes, whether it be state, federal, or even some grant related outcomes, talk about a six month ROI. Well, here's the reality. Something may not happen in the six months following the service, but what's now going to happen within six and 12 months, 12 and 18, 18 and 24 without the appropriate aftercare, without the appropriate ongoing level of intervention? And we stop measuring in that way as, as a provider of service. I think longitudinal studies will bear that out over time as well. So I do think a longer term level of investment into services. And quite frankly, I think services that work. I think it's so valuable that you bring in organizations across this community to come and talk about what they do. But I would also really challenge us to ask the question, are there too many of us out there? Um, and are the ones out there, do they have data to demonstrate there's actually an engine underneath that hood? Um, what we're trying to do at Thompson is actually build what we're calling an engine of impact, that we can demonstrate that what we're doing actually has an impact, that it actually is proven out, and that the outcomes bear out the ongoing requirement and impetus for ongoing funding. And if the outcomes tell us we're not doing a good job, implement countermeasures to get better. Or possibly allow somebody else that can do a much better job at that service to do it. Because at the end of the day, I'm less worried about Thompson and more worried about children, families, and community. Wow, that's, I don't know how
0: to follow that up because you just, you really moved me there with what you just said. I, I like what you said about the engine of impact, you know, and I, I think about it, I think about planting a seed and you plant a seed and you just don't plant a seed. And you have to, you have to nurture it, you have to cultivate it, you have to make sure that you take care of the area. Sometimes that means making sure that um, you pick out weeds, and sometimes those, some of those weeds may have thorns, and it's gonna hurt. Uh, you have to water it, you have to spend time. So it, take, it doesn't take six months, nine months. You know, a child's life, a family's life is a lifetime, and um, it's a big investment. And you're right, I think a lot of stakeholders sometimes wanna see a quick um, ROI, you know, return on their investment. And uh, is there a price that we should have on a child's life? Yeah. Or should we consider their life to be priceless? You know, sort of this, there is no amount of money that we can spend to make sure that children get and deserve the services and support that they need to be healthy and to thrive in our communities. So, you know, the the three things that I see here that Thompson is doing with their growth and transformation is, you mentioned earlier with early childhood. So the Friends of the Children program. You also mentioned the uh, Thompson Child Development Center that's off uh, Clanton Road and West Boulevard. You know, working with pre-K, working with families. Family stability is another thing that Thompson has done in the past, but now is doing even more of. Uh, Which again, in working with young children and adolescents, we know that there's a family connected to them. And in order to make sure that they thrive in that family, we need to connect with families as well to help them with information support, with tools to become successful. And then mental health, you know, again, Thompson for me has always been known as a mental health provider, I've worked there for seven years, way back in the day. And Thompson, like I mentioned earlier, is very near and dear to my heart. But I feel like what Thompson is doing is they're addressing the stigma of mental health in our communities and letting people know that it's okay to seek help. It's okay to say I am receiving support and services, and not to be ashamed of that. And so I really appreciate what what you're doing, what Thompson and 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 your team is doing right now for all of us. So, yeah, it's
2: it's it's been a blessing. Yeah,
1: and I if I could just follow up on that too. Or go ahead. Sorry. No, <laughs> you
2: know, I just, um, just to dovetail off your, you know, I think you're commenting around mental health. You know, I think uh, mental health is something that really um, is definitely a social determinant of health or the access to that care. Um, but that being said, it's um, that's pervasive, right? CMS um, put out some data a few years back that um, 24% of their student body at one point in time had contemplated suicide. Um, I think 16 to 17 actually began to act on that. Um, We knew of a young man through a a staff member that was an upcoming rising senior um, in Union County, top top five in his class, Um, girlfriend, job, starting football player, but yet ended his own life, grew up in an upper middle class. Um, So it's all around. I think it's a crisis. You know, I think it's funny in some way, shape or form, and I just, if I didn't take the opportunity to say this. It's we've really increased our impact and we really haven't even tried. And I think that's something the community needs to, to hear and understand. Um, I can't outgrow the need in our community at any level and no organization combined can. Or what I like to say is Charlotte-Mecklenburg area is such a beautiful place to grow up for me, but not necessarily every family. And I think CMS recently put this, at least, I don't know, the data set came out, but I did hear the quote that if a child is born into poverty in Mecklenburg County, they stay into poverty. And if that's not a call to action and something that all of us feel is completely and utterly unacceptable, I'm not sure what is. Right.
1: I agree with you. Well, thank you so much. And I'm so curious, too, about a term that you had mentioned a little earlier in our conversation um, when you had said, you know, we want to make sure that when you look under the hood that there's an engine there that's running. Um, And you talked about this engine of impact. And I think a lot of organizations are trying to develop some of the things and tools that they need to be able to really ensure that that's there. Things like a theory of change and, and developing um, measurable outcomes and having a plan to measure those outcomes over time. So I was wondering if you could have, um, you know, one of the things that you all are doing at Thompson that maybe others could learn from to help, uh, you know, human services and, and other allied professions, um, you know, to be able to develop these types of tools um, and kind of frameworks to help them ensure that their work is, is doing the best they can.
2: Yeah, great question. Um, you know, first and foremost, we're a work in progress, right? So I want to make sure that, um, that I'm not sitting here in the pulpit um, saying that w- we've arrived. We just have not. <laughs> um, but we do understand the importance of data. We understand the importance of being outcome-oriented and driven. Um, you know, I, I think first and foremost, um, what are those macro-level outcomes you want to be known for? So, you know, in our space where we do early childhood services, family stability work and mental health, there's a macro level outcome. And um, for us on the early childhood side, we can say um, a certain percentage of our children actually experience early childhood gains using a validated tool. On the family um, stability side, we look at a percentage of our families that improve in the Strengthening families' protective framework factors on mental health. We look at mental health gains using a validated tool on the macro level. So we identify what are our core outcomes in an area of service first and foremost because those roll up. But what is each program's intent? And I think sometimes that's really hard, and we even struggle and wrestle around with that. What's the intent of this service? What it, What is the outcome? The desired outcome, short and long term. And so sometimes the funder will tell you what that is, and sometimes that that out, outcome as defined will actually be an output and we got to be careful about that. So I think one is we got to know a lot about the services we're delivering and we have to understand what we're trying, what is our desire in that? What are we trying to get accomplished? So defining the outcome in a service is really critical and at least from our view on the world. Uh, and then from there we go into investment, um, you know, not-for-profits of all sizes, shapes and sizes need to make a conscientious decision that they have to invest into data, data gathering, data tracking, that um, they need to invest into validated tools to assess their effect and impact. They need to invest into um, performance and quality improvement teams and professionals that focus on that part as a third party to really help inform practice. And then from there, it goes into other things, cultural things, right? Rigor, doing things to fidelity, making sure that you're looking at data with a rigorous lens, that you're not justifying why data looks bad but you're responding to it with countermeasures. And sometimes you have to really look at yourself in the mirror and say, the data's not looking good, why is that? And we've been in meetings and program leaders in our organization and in others I've led, you know, they try to justify why the data isn't a negative and they never look intrinsically at the performance. It may be a clinician or a team of clinicians. The reality, we might not be the best provider at that service, no matter what we do. And that, you know, it goes back to my comment earlier. And if we're not good at that work, why are we doing it? And then really have the courage to say we're not good at it and maybe go down to a partner organization that does it well and start to be a cross-referring refer, agency to an organization that does it well. And let's get out of the silos and really look at impact to the community at large. I like that you said,
0: how do we, how do we get out of living in silos and start connecting with other organizations that may be able to provide what that individual or that family or that community deserves to have? Because sometimes it's not us. Right. We might not right. be That's the it. answer. And we have to be okay with that. We have to be okay with saying, as much as we want to try, we, not, we might not be able to help, but we know somebody who can. And I feel like there are organizations who, instead of doing that, will continue to try to do something that isn't working. And unfortunately, that ends up becoming something that isn't helpful for that individual or their family or their community. And it's time for us as helping professionals to step up and say, we need to stop. We need to help and connect. Right. So thanks for saying that.
2: Yeah. You know, and, and community partner agencies, um, you know, it's, a, and it's kind of a mixed bag, if you will. Some are more than willing and ready and able to begin to talk about partnerships, and some are a little bit leery of, <laughs> of why you're calling. Um, but that being said, we've been super intentional in the last two years. I, it didn't take us long to assess internally that we needed to partner more with the community at large and have done a good job into developing really good collaborative partnerships um, where we, maybe we're providing a service that's not currently provided by a partner agency and they're doing one for us. Classic example on the early childhood side would be the uh, Charlotte Bilingual Preschool who focuses in on um, bilingual um, education. Well, we do bilingual parent education, Spanish speaking parent education and clinical work for them. Uh, Elon Holmes is another great partner of ours where they're running their transitional living program on Johnson C. Smith University. We're providing the clinical services for them. We partner with Pats Place, who we talked about earlier, in that same vein, and others, Florence Crittenden. So we've really looked to expand um, our partnership approach to what's going on in the community. As I said earlier, we cannot outgrow the need here. Well, thanks for mentioning all that. Um, Pre-recording,
0: so before we started recording the episode, Will and I were talking a little bit about some previous guests we had from Pat's Place Child Advocacy Center. And so that, that's what Will was mentioning there. Um, shout out to Pat's Place again. So, Will, I do want to ask you as we uh, head towards wrapping up, if you could talk a little bit more about the Adolescent Girls PRTF that you mentioned uh, you guys recently opened up.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it goes back to the previous comment I made about community collaboration. Cardinal Innovations, the um, LME, local managing entity here, had some community investment, uh, reinvestment grants that came out almost a year ago now. And one of the biggest needs on their needs list has continued to be adolescent girls' psychiatric residential treatment programs. Mm-hmm. We had a, um, an empty building on our 66-acre campus in Matthews and began to immediately solution and partner with actually Mecklenburg County at the county level to talk about what, what a joint venture to ask would look like to help us use a reinvestment grant to renovate, relicense, and then staff a program that was really meeting a greater need here. So it really was identified through our partnership with the county and with Cardinal support on the financing side that focusing on some type of psychiatric residential program for young ladies who have been victims of human trafficking was, was a need. Now, that being said, we're, we're gonna serve any adolescent girl that meets medical necessity for the service, but we're also prepared to really deal with those victims of human trafficking, which has been a a pervasive problem, one in the child welfare system nationally, and then obviously here in the Charlotte-Mecklenburg area. So through partnership, that came online and we're actually accepting our first young lady this afternoon into that service. Again, that was a collaborative effort, which I'm really proud of the fact that we handled it in a solution-focused manner. We didn't want to shove a square peg in a round hole. So we went right to the source and said, hey, we have a facility. We have a desire to do more to impact our community. What is your need? Their response to us was, adolescent girls PRTF with a, with a little bit of a specialization around this human trafficking um, victims. So uh, it's a brand new initiative. This is our third new residential program at Thompson in the last 18 months. Uh, unfortunately, the need for residential beds has not minimized. It's actually continued to grow. Uh, I think we'll see some more of that with Raise the Age, which will impact our community in a different way. Right. And some other things that are happening on this kind of convergence Well, I'm calling a convergence of change in North Carolina, including child welfare, uh, Medicaid reform, um, and juvenile justice raise the age. There's three things happening all at once. So we got to keep our fingers on the pulse. I promise you this, the needs are going to be rampant. And organizations like us have to be ready for that. And we shall be. And our hope
0: is that we can uh, utilize this concept of collaboration amongst agencies, amongst helping professionals to make sure that we address the social determinants of health not only the community, but of, of our young folks, right. our, our young children who are our leaders. We should look at children as the leaders of our future. And um, I'm so thankful that Thompson continues to do the work yeah. that they're doing 133 years and so much more. So, Will, as we head towards this last segment of our podcast, can you tell us something about Yourself, something that you enjoy doing that is not related to your work. So we're, <laughs> we're shifting gears here a little bit. We've gone from data to PRTF to mental wellness, and now we're, we're talking about something totally different.
2: Yeah. yeah a little self care, right? right. Um, it's really important in this work. I mean, you know, for me, it's pretty simple. Um, family, um, as much time as I can spend with my family is probably one of the most energizing things I do um, outside of work. Then try to exercise, you know, lift weights, um, cardio you know, four to five times a week, and then read, really read. I'm a voracious um, reader, lifetime learner. Know that um, I haven't arrived, um, that Thompson has not arrived, and we have to keep on learning.
0: Do you still play basketball? Now, for our listeners, Will did let me know that he played basketball at the University of Central Florida, where he rid me a little bit because, as you know, I'm a Duke fan, and uh, (laughs) they gave Duke a hard run this year, although in the end, we know who won that game, (laughs) that game. But uh, yeah, do you still play basketball?
2: No, it's very similar to golf. I I told somebody that they asked me if I play golf. I sold my clubs after my third kid. Um, (laughs) So I have five children. Um, I don't play basketball anymore. The knees can't hold up. Um, The body is um, feeling things that it didn't used to feel now.
0: (laughs) What position did you play?
2: I was actually, believe it or not, 40, 50 pounds lighter. I was a point guard.
0: Wow. Awesome. (laughs) Well, were you as skilled as Aubrey Dawkins?
2: Not even remotely
0: (laughs) close. (laughs) Uh, thanks for that laugh right there.
1: Awesome. Well, thank you so much uh, for that. And so for, as we kind of wrap things up here, for people who would like to get in touch with you, what is the best way that they can do that?
2: If you want to get in touch with, uh, obviously, if you don't want to get in touch with Thompson directly, I would just defer you to our website, www.thompson, But that being said, if you're ready to lean into our mission, Um, I'm going to do something a little different here. I'm going to give you my direct cell phone and email address 704-574-5841 for those interested in leaning in to our mission and impacting this community in ways we've never done it. And my email address is wjones at thompsoncff.org. Well, thank you so much. That's great that you
0: are being very personable with our listeners. And I encourage listeners, not only with Thompson, but with any organization or agency that we spotlight and highlight in our podcast, please reach out to them if you want to learn more about them or even volunteer. Or there might be career opportunities there as well. We definitely encourage you to reach out. Well, thank you again for your time, your commitment, and your energy to creating healthy and thriving communities through your work and advocacy at Thompson
2: first and foremost, thank you for this opportunity. It's been humbling. And thank you for what you guys are doing for this community. It's tremendous.
1: Well, thank you so much. To access this episode, along with notes and information about Thompson's Child and Family Focus, navigate to thehelpinghandspodcast.com.
0: And thanks to our listeners for their curiosity and willingness to learn something new today. Until next time, remember, strong always, always strong.